The reading this morning is taken from Exodus chapter 14, which can be found on page 69 in the Pew Bibles. We begin at verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haroth, opposite Baal-Zephron. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out in the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea 
and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is the word of the Lord. Keep your Bibles open at Exodus chapter kind of 13, 14. That'll be really helpful to me. I imagine it would be helpful to you as well. Let me pray briefly and then we'll get underway. Lord, settle our hearts and open our minds and our souls that we might trust you more, love you more, obey you more, so that we increasingly resemble the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. There are some very strange vocations, jobs, professions out there. You know, I read this week you can get work as a bacon critic. Did you read that? Amazing. Uh, All you need apparently is an insatiable hunger for bacon and also some serious writing chops. That's what the ad said. I thought that was funny. Short-term contract, by the way. There's a 59-year-old dude who lives in New Hampshire and his sole job is to repair fountain pens. That's all he does. And he gets them sent to him from right across the world and at any one time there can be up to 600 fountain pens ready to be fixed. Or, if you don't like that, you could be a snake milker. They are the brave souls who collect poisonous venom by hand from snakes. They sort of gently expose the snake's fangs and squeeze out the deadly juices. Now, I think that is a strange vocation. But I reckon there's a more obvious but nonetheless strange job, and that is to be an actor. So let me get it right. You spend your whole working life skillfully trying to be someone else. That's unusual. I went to um, one of those how to host a murder parties a few weeks ago, where, and the whole time you had to stay in character. And I was cast as Al Capone early on in his career. So uh, club bouncer, but hidden hitman. And I was saying to my friend, like, are you trying to say something by casting me as Al Capone? Anyway, the whole night, like, I just wanted to get out of character and have some real conversations with people, but but you had to stay in character all night long. And it was just odd. And I'm sure there's lots of perks in um, being an actor, especially a famous one, but surely one of the downsides is having to go to one of those interminable award shows, like the Oscars or the Golden Globes. Has anyone here ever watched one of those shows in their entirety? I rest my case, Your Honour. So dull. And in fact, I think the only thing that could make them more dull is if the same person won every category. Here's the thing. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, that we're looking at this term, I think God would win all the awards. Best producer. That's the the one who takes the initiative and and makes it all happen. The Lord, God of Israel. Uh, Best director. The one who directs all the action. Uh, Yep, that's God as well. Uh, Best actor. The main player. Star of the show. Yep, that's the Lord again, God of Israel. 
Best supporting actor, well, then it's a tie between Moses, the kind of bumbling, reluctant leader, and Pharaoh, the archetypal villain. But best screenplay, God. Best foreign film, God. Best scriptwriter, God. Pretty much a clean sweep. Now, that'll make for a very dull awards night. But it makes for a great story, doesn't it? And we're going to see that again as we consider the Red Sea escape from Exodus 13 and 14. Because more than anyone else, the Israelites' deliverance through the Red Sea illustrates God's character. Not Moses' character or Pharaoh's character or the Israelites' character, but God's character. And the deliverance through the Red Sea illustrates God's pattern of of salvation. So we're looking at his character and then we're looking at his pattern of salvation. Now, to bring us up to speed, after our week of special services last week, we're midway through our series in this Old Testament epic adventure called Exodus. We're calling our series Exit because that's what Exodus is. It's an exit. It's a departure. It's a way out. And we've seen so far how God's rapidly multiplying people were under great oppression in concentration camp Egypt. We've seen the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of personal covenant faithfulness, put his name to work in a series of plagues against Egypt and its gods and its king, Pharaoh. And we saw how Pharaoh did not budge through nine devastating opportunities to relent. But he finally did following the plague on the firstborn, where every firstborn son of Egypt died. You remember we saw that though Israel was not without guilt, it was spared the same fate through the provision of a Passover lamb, a perfect sacrifice who absorbed the just judgment of God in place of as a substitute for the Israelites. And there were obvious and clear parallels with our salvation from sin and death because our judgment was poured out on Jesus Christ who is called our Passover lamb who was sacrificed on the cross. But back in Exodus, we saw that finally Pharaoh let the Israelites go and they left Egypt in their millions. And you think, well, that should be the end of the story, right? But it's not the end of the story because Pharaoh again hardens his heart and he chased after his departing workforce of Israelite slaves and he chased them to the shores of the Red Sea. And it's here where we pick up the story today and we see more of God's character and we see his pattern of salvation. So first thing for us to see is that the Red Sea displays God's nature or his character. It shows us in kind of high definition what God is really like. So follow the story with me in your Bibles. Have a look. Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. About 600,000 men plus women and children. So we're talking upwards of 2 million Israelites, as well as many others fleeing Egypt. 12 verse 51, have a look. The Lord brought them out of Egypt by their divisions, but in chapter 13 verse 17, they did not flee by the most obvious route. Interesting. The most obvious route was the Via Maris, the way of the sea. That's kind of the, the brown line that hugs the northern coastline um, by the Mediterranean Sea there. But not choosing the obvious route gives us an opportunity to see God's great wisdom. Obvious is just too obvious. 
But in choosing an alternative route, we discover that God knows what is best for his people. And that's a general principle. The way of the sea, that's the northern kind of brown line, would take them through an Egyptian militarised zone. And then in chapter 13, verse 17, we discover it would take them face to face with the coast-hugging Philistines who were as bad as they sounded. And that might give the Israelites cold feet. And so God knew what they could handle and he knew that they needed to go the long way around. And that's kind of illustrated by the red, kind of more squiggly southern line there. That was their route. I wonder, though, whether you ever think that when you're taking the long way around in life, when things are less straightforward than you hoped for or wished for, I wonder whether you think that's evidence that God is disinterested in you rather than him knowing what you can handle at a point in time or knowing how you and I might need to develop and grow. I wonder when you read the wisdom of God's word, whether you consider it burdensome or tiresome, or whether you can see within it his wisdom being channeled towards our benefit. He is wise. That's actually his character. And we see it here. And so firstly, he chooses the less obvious, the alternative route. But then in 14 verse 1, have a look at it in your Bibles there. He tells the Israelites to turn back. I mean, it sounds very odd. And strategically, militarily, it's disastrous. But of course, God is wise. And so as Pharaoh looks at these meandering kind of Israelites, he thinks he sees a people in confusion, in disarray. And he plays precisely into God's hands when Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues them. Now, I guess that doesn't look like a real obvious plan, does it? I don't suppose the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross looked like an obvious plan of salvation for the sins of the world either, did it? But in both we see the supreme wisdom of God at work. I wonder if you know that wisdom. I wonder if you can see it in your life. I wonder if you will entrust your future to it. Well, maybe wisdom is not enough for you. You want more. Well, there is more. We also see God's presence with his people here. What do we see? Firstly, his, his wisdom, but then secondly, also his presence with his people. Of course, he's always been with Moses since the episode of the the burning bush there in chapter 3. I mean, he has a relationship with Moses that is described later in Exodus as face-to-face, literally ear-to-ear. God spoke with Moses as a man speaks with his friend. But here in chapter 13 and 14, we see God visibly, manifestly with his people as a whole. Have a look in 13 verse 21. There is God traveling with them, going ahead of them, a pillar of cloud in the day, a pillar of fire in the night, never leaving its place in front of the people. Later on in 14 verse 19, we discover that the presence of God not only guided them, but it guarded them too. It moved from in front of the people to a position between the Israelites and their Egyptian pursuers so that neither went near the other all night. Of course, brothers and sisters, in these last days, God is present with us, not in a pillar of cloud or of fire, but still guarding and guiding and convicting and refining us 
by his great and wonderful Holy Spirit, whom Jesus gives to all Christians. So much so, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rests on us. Now, I know you can't see the Holy Spirit visibly in the way the Israelites saw the presence of God in, in the fire and in the cloud, and you may not feel differently either day to day, but God is present with us even more so than he was with the Israelites, because now his spirit has taken up residence in our spirits. Which means when you lose your job, or you lose your health, or your abilities, or someone very close to you, or your dreams and hopes, that you don't lose him. He remains with us, guiding, guarding, convicting, and refining us. He is wise and he is present. And we see them both here in Exodus, in the Red Sea. Thirdly, uh, under this first point, we also see the power of God. The power of God. Uh, In Australia, we're in an election cycle. Uh, Of course, they're in an election cycle in the United States as well. They're looking for a new president. And I think The West Wing was uh, one of the best TV shows ever on TV, and it's about the President of the United States, President Jed Bartle. He's the the statesmanly-looking guy in the middle, and all the people flanking him are his kind of staffers. And if you've seen this show, if you haven't seen the show, you should watch it. It's just, it's lovely. Lovely and light, you know. Um, if If you haven't seen the show, though, you'll remember there's a scene where the President, get this, he's playing basketball in the car park of the White House. Like, who does that? Well, he does that, I suppose, doesn't he? And he's playing with his young and talented and very cocky staffers, and they're whipping him. And he's out of breath, and his staffers are kind of ribbing him and telling him that he really needs to take a break. But then it becomes just a little pointed, you see. And one of them says, effectively, this game that they're playing out is really a metaphor for his entire presidency, where his obsessive need to win overshadows the best advice of his staffers and advisers. And they say, Mr. President, let the poets write your story, and when they write your story, they will cast you as a tragic figure. It's pretty bold to say that to the president, but it's game point. And at this point, the president makes a surprise last-minute substitution, and on comes some seven-foot-six college basketball champion, And he makes some mumbling, half-hearted suggestion that it's a legitimate substitution because the college champ is a federal employee. But let's be honest, he's the president, you've got to play. And so when the lippy staffer goes to kind of shoot the winning basket, college champ unsparingly, unemotionally swats the ball out of his hand. And of course, this um, the president's new team just um, close out the match. And the staffers lose despite their trash talk and their cockiness. And the president says to his lippy staffer, you write about that, poet. Classic. Totally outplayed. Uh, A literal slam dunk. And that is the picture that we get of God here. Uh, Have a look. Uh, Verse 6, chapter 14. Pharaoh readies himself. 600 of his best charioteers. That, by the way, is the most impressive army of the ancient world. 
They're going to go get the Israelites who are wandering around in a muddle, so he presumes. In verse 9, the Egyptian army catches up with the Israelites as they camp by the sea, terrifying them. Ha! We've got you now, thinks Pharaoh. You're trapped between an impassable sea and our unconquerable army. But of course, God is the great game changer, isn't he? Especially when his people are at stake especially when his promises are at stake, especially when the glory of his name is on the line. Of course he is. And so he not only moves his presence and his angels from in front of the people to in between the Egyptians and the Israelites, as we've already seen, he uses a human agent, Moses, who stretches out his hand across the sea, and he uses the force of nature, a strong east wind, which we believe happens when we've been in weather like today, and it blows back the waters all night long, and the Israelites walk through these two great walls of water to safety on the other side, and then as the Egyptians followed the Israelites into the sea, during the last watch of the night, the graveyard shift becomes a graveyard indeed. God causes the wheels of the chariots to jam and fall off. At daybreak, the waters go back to the normal, swallowing the Egyptian army, covering, verse 28, the chariots and the horsemen, covering the entire army of Pharaoh. Not one of them survived. Now that, my friends, is what we call a game changer. It's what we call a slam dunk. It is God's power at work for his people against his enemies, and it makes us think we ought to choose our sides wisely. Wouldn't you say? So he is wise, and he is present, and he is supremely powerful, and he is also jealous for his own glory. That is, he rightly does not want to share the loyalty of the people that he created and continues to sustain with any other thing, No idol, no thing carved out of stone or wood that cannot move or talk, no ideology or philosophy that is empty and cannot bring life, no created thing is worthy of our worship, only the Creator. And He wants the world to know about Him. And I get that that sounds arrogant if we were talking about mere mortals, mere pieces of creation, but when you are the eternal, perfect, wise, present powerful creator and saviour God, it's an entirely appropriate thing to desire. It is fitting. It's right. And so God says in 14 verse 4, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. He says it again in verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen, and then in the heat of it all, and I want you to have a look at this in verse 25 in your Bibles, even the Egyptians say, let's get out of here. Let's get away from the Israelites because the Lord is fighting for them against us. In other words, they come to know the Lord and God gets the glory that he is rightly due. I feel like it's a... um, It's a regret that even Christians sometimes steal the glory from God, even in stories like this one, because we're ashamed of or embarrassed about the testimony of the Scriptures. You know, when we get embarrassed about the miraculous, 
Like we need to say to God, God, you can't possibly do with your creation what the scriptures said you did with your creation. And we feel the need to explain it away. It was just coincidental. It's just natural forces at play. And, and our attempts to explain away the text robs God of his glory. There was a story of a liberal um, minister preaching in an African-American church. And when he referred to this story, the passing of the Red Sea, someone shouted out, Praise the Lord, saving all damn children through the deep waters. Praise God for his miracle. I've been working on that accent, by the way. And uh, the preacher looked down, condescendingly said, It was no miracle. They were in marshlands. And the tide was ebbing, and the children of Israel picked their way across in six inches of water. Praise the Lord, says the voice, for drowning all them Egyptians six inches of water. (laughs) You look at the story, you look at the text. Twice God commands. Twice Moses responds. Twice creation obeys and the Israelites walk through two walls of water. Friends, God will get his glory. He will. This is a wonderful story of deliverance, but it is one in which we see, really in high definition, I think, God's wisdom, his presence, his power and his glory. That means for us he is wise, so we listen and we obey. He is present, so we know that we're never alone. He is powerful to act in our favour, and he is worthy of glory. So we give him our allegiance and devotion and worship. And above seeing these aspects of his character, wisdom, presence, power and glory... The other thing we see in the Red Sea is really a pattern of salvation, which is the pattern of salvation. And that's the second thing to see today. The Red Sea displays God's pattern of salvation. And I want us to zero in on the interaction between God and Moses and the Israelites as the Egyptians are approaching in verses 10 to 14. And you see it play out clearly. Though the Israelites had seen firsthand the wonders of God in the plagues, Though it says in verse 8, they marched out of Egypt boldly, instead of looking hopefully to God and desiring his glory, they looked fearfully at the Egyptians. And what did they desire? To go back to slavery in Egypt. I mean, I imagine they still had fresh scars on their backs. Wouldn't it be better for us to serve the Egyptians than die here in the desert? Was their cry. Like we often do, the very first sign of trouble, they return to the false security of their old ways of living, the false security of their old ways of coping, their old habits, their old traits, maybe their previous addictions. And we'll look at more of that next week. But contrast that uh, in verse 13 to the response of Moses. Have a look. Moses says, don't be afraid, stand firm. Did you get that? Not fear, firmness. He says, you will see the deliverance of the Lord, but you won't see your Egyptian oppressors anymore. 
So you'll see salvation. You won't see your oppressors. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to stand still. You see, very interesting words that reveal God's pattern of salvation. God will bring the action. Remember, he's best producer, best director, best actor, best screenplay. He will bring the deliverance. The Lord will do the fighting. And for the Israelites' part, it starts with standing firm in verse 13 and it ends in verse 14 with standing still. Now let me say, that idea of standing still is not like a complete absolute summary of the Christian life. You know, that sort of idea of just let go and let God, man. You know, that kind of vague laziness. Often in the Christian life, we'll need to be active. Putting our faith to work, exercising it. So it's not about laziness or vagueness, but it does, however, remind us that our deliverance is based upon the action and initiative of God rather than our efforts. That is, our salvation depends on what He has done for us, not what we have done for Him. Stand firm, says Moses, stand still. And I understand that standing still is not something that comes naturally to us, certainly doesn't come naturally to soldiers, does it? When you see those military parades from North Korea and, or Russia and the soldiers are marching in step, kicking up their legs ridiculously high, saluting their favourite despot from a balcony up there somewhere. That's what soldiers do, isn't it? They march and they move and they fight. British, though, I'm there about the only ones who are excellent at standing still, aren't they? But you still would have seen video footage of one of those parades in the London summer in those years when they have one, and um, they're all standing there in their heavy gear, row after row after row, and the Queen is there inspecting her troops, and then all of a sudden, there's another fellow over here, and he just falls over, like that. You would have seen it. It's just too much fainting under the sun's heat. The soldiers find it difficult to stand still, don't they? I guess that shows us that here the Israelites are more spectators than soldiers, aren't they? It certainly shows us God's pattern of salvation. Now, you ever think about it. If God waited for his people to trust him first, if he waited for them to step out in faith, well, where do you reckon they'd be? They'd still be there, wouldn't they, complaining? And so he takes the initiative. And only after that do they fear and believe. Only in the very last chapter of this passage, did you notice... It says that when the Israelites saw all that God had done, they feared the Lord and put their trust in him. And friends, that is the pattern of salvation. First, God delivers us from danger, saving us where we cannot save ourselves. And then we respond in faith, trusting him and giving him our devotion and allegiance and worship. That is the pattern. We see it in Exodus and the Red Sea. Then we see it in Jesus who saves us from our twin oppressors of sin and death. Come forward to the Gospels. Luke chapter 9, Luke records the transfiguration of Jesus. It's an unusual event. Jesus is on a mountain meeting with God, and Moses, who had died hundreds of years earlier, is there somehow, like in a dazzling, visible visitation. The great Old Testament prophet Elijah is also there in dazzling brilliance, and so these two... Old Testament greats somehow commune with Jesus and the disciples, or some of them, are allowed to witness this glorious conference. 
But it's very interesting how Luke records it in, in uh, chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, I discovered something outstanding about this, this last week. You've probably known it for ages. When it says departure here, you know the word that Luke uses? It's the Greek word exodus. When Moses and Elijah met with Jesus on a mountain, they spoke about Jesus' exodus. And I've got to say, when I heard that man, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. The exodus which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. And of course, that's talking about Jesus' exodus from life as he was killed on a Roman cross for our sins in our place to bring us back into the presence of God. The departure that it's talking about is his departure from the favor of God when on the cross, Jesus experienced the righteous wrath of God that was due to fall upon us because of our sin and which was instead meted out upon him though he was sinless. They spoke about his departure, his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Friends, Jesus' exodus is the thing that brings our deliverance from our spiritual slavery to sin and eternal death. The scriptures consistently say that all of us are by nature slaves to sin. It has a power over us from which we are unable to free ourselves we need somebody else to go ahead of us, to deliver us. Remember, it was none other than Jesus himself who says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Yet, if the Son, that's him, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Free from the power of sin over us. So that we can now say no to sin and ungodliness in a way that we previously couldn't. It's not that we always will, but we now can in a way we, we previously couldn't. Free from the penalty of sin, so that instead of eternal dread, we can look forward to everlasting splendor with the one who went ahead of us through his own exodus from life. Let me say, if you haven't considered this, is that something you need to consider today? I think it would be an excellent day to do that. Don't imagine there's much else you can do. As Moses and Elijah and Jesus met up on that mountain of glory, man, I wonder what they talked about. I wonder what they said. But I do know the pattern of salvation. It's one in which God takes the initiative, producer, director, actor, screen player, script writer. It's one in which Jesus departs, exits, suffers, absorbs, dies in advance, delivering us from spiritual death and danger, saving us where we cannot save ourselves. And because he has done all that for us, as a matter of history, it becomes of us to respond in faith, turning to God, trusting in his wisdom, knowing his presence, not being embarrassed about his power and giving him glory, allegiance and worship. Standing still is not the complete description of our Christian lives, but God going ahead. In Exodus, yes, but certainly in his Son. And standing firm, us standing firm, 
Well, that's not just the story of the Red Sea. That remains the pattern of salvation. Why don't you join with me in thanking him for that right now as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea. It certainly very clearly shows us your character, your wisdom, presence, power and glory. But we see beyond that the pattern of salvation, one in which you take the initiative, one in which we only follow in trust and obedience. We praise you for doing that for the Israelites. We praise you for doing it even more through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf, that we might know you. And in his great name, we pray these things. Amen.